So there are studies currently and as papers are coming out and showing the power of this technology, I think that uh, things don't take off in a linear way. They take off more with a turning point. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Alex Merwin from AWS. Imagine if the genome were a basic map of the city, then the proteome would be street view, capturing every detail down to the graffiti and the potholes. Today, we welcome Seer to the show who are pioneering new ways to decode the secrets of this incredibly detailed landscape to improve human health. SEER leverages engineered nanoparticles to provide unbiased, deep, and large-scale access to the proteome. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the convergence of tech and biology, the challenges and opportunities in proteomics, the potential for large language models to unlock a new wave of bioinnovation, and the science behind SEER's groundbreaking technology. Let's hand it over to Amrita Sarkar, who is hosting today's conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. My name is Amrita Sarkar, and I'm a Principal Business Development Manager on the AWS Healthcare and Life Sciences Startups team, where I work with the founders and investors behind some of the world's leading healthcare and life sciences startups and I help them resolve their technical, business, and regulatory challenges. I'm a mathematician by training with a PhD in computational biology, and prior to joining AWS about four years ago, I spent almost a decade as a venture capital investor funding life sciences startups, among others. It is my great pleasure today to be chatting with Seraphine Batsoglu, who is currently Chief Data Officer at Sierra Biosciences, Hi, Seraphim. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amrita. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Can you tell us about the main problem that SEER is trying to solve and the unique approach that you are taking to do so? SEER is developing technologies to decipher the proteome. So let me say a few words about the proteome. As each one of us has a genome, and that is given to us at birth, and each one of the roughly 30 trillion cells in our body have a nearly identical copy of that genome. The genome roughly contains 20,000 genes, and each gene is like a blueprint for producing a protein, or in most cases, actually more than one protein, several forms of protein. So we have a genome and we have a proteome. However, the proteome is highly dynamic. So even though our cells have the same genome, roughly, throughout our lifetime. The proteome varies according to condition, according to cell type, tissue, and time of the day, time in the cell cycle, environmental conditions, and so on. So proteins are really the building blocks of life. They are involved in every biological function, including the structure of the cell and its organelles, including communication across cells including being little machines within a cell, such as motors and cleavers, catalyzing biochemical reactions, and so on. So the proteome is extremely complex and also extremely informative. So if we have the proteome of different cells in different conditions and different time points, or if we have the proteome of individuals across a study such as a 
disease study of cases and controls or a longitudinal study of individuals and their health. And we have data on their proteome, perhaps accessible proteomes like plasma. We can, in principle, learn a lot about health, disease, and how to treat disease. So that is why the proteome is so important. And unfortunately, the proteome has lagged behind the genome in terms of being deciphered. And there are many reasons for that, including just the technologies were developed faster for the genome. It was the first thing we attacked. Also that the proteome is more difficult. So we have, the genome is really a very clean digital code in one huge macromolecule consisting of 23 chromosomes. The proteome consists of about, well, many more than 20,000 proteins and their variants, including plice variants, allelic variants, as well as post-translational modifications. So even the same protein becomes different versions of it and performs different functions at different times. Another level of complexity is the dynamic range of the proteome in certain highly accessible biofluids, such as plasma in particular. So that means that certain proteins are very abundant, such as albumin in plasma, and other proteins that are also extremely important are many orders of magnitude, maybe as many as eight orders of magnitude, lower in abundance. So finding these levels in a haystack has been to date very complex. So SEER develops technologies that aim to go deep in the proteome, meaning finding even the low abundance proteins, and to also detect all the variants of the proteins. So not just have one readout per general protein group, but have much more than that. So we use nanoparticle technology to collect proteins across the dynamic range in complex samples such as plasma. And then we couple this with the mass spectrometry, which is a well-established technology and it's really the gold standard for finding proteins and their proteoforms. As well as, luckily, there is recently very good developments vastly improving this technology. So really look for having a combined solution that is going deep and very scalably so we can analyze large human cohorts. Excellent. Thank you for that insight, Serafim. And this is a great segue to my next question because obviously you just gave our uh, audience a primer on molecular biology as well. And you've been in academia for quite a number of years. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your journey, starting out as a trained computer scientist, then being in academia. And then you've obviously been a co-founder as well, notably of DNA Nexus, which is a company that that everybody's quite familiar with. And then you worked at Illumina and in Citra as well before joining SEER as as chief data officer. So tell us a little bit about what your journey has been like. Yeah, thank you for asking. So I started my PhD at MIT in 1996. And when I started, I was looking for a topic of research that is scientific rather than being purely engineering. So I wanted to do science. And I found uh, the group of Professor Bonnie Berger, who was doing research in computational biology. Now, at the time, computational biology was really at its infancy. It was a field, and I, ne- I remember even friends of mine telling me, oh, is this 
ever going to be useful or will biologists ever care about this research? But then, luckily, the human genome gained pace as a project that was a large international project at the time that culminated in 2000 in the first publication of the first draft of the human genome. At the time, I started collaborating with the laboratory of Eric Lander, who was director of the MIT Genome Institute. And he became my co-advisor in the last two years of my PhD and got me involved in projects related to the Human Genome Project itself, and especially projects motivated by it. How to assemble the next big genomes in more efficient ways, technical whole genome shotgun assembly. How to compare human with other genomes, that of mouse and other, how to develop the algorithms that enable us to do that. How to find genes uh, using a comparison of human and mouse and other genomes. I got involved in these projects. I finished my PhD in 2000, and then in 2001, I joined Stanford University in the Department of Computer Science as a season professor. I joined then the AI lab of Stanford. And throughout my career at Stanford, I was heavily involved collaborating with the School of Medicine in particular, the genetics department and other departments in the School of Medicine. So really, students in my team have always been interdisciplinary in their work. I had the great privilege, Stanford is a great place. I had the incredible privilege to be advisor to more than 30 PhD students and the postdocs who were incredibly talented. Many of them are leaders now in academia and in industry. And throughout this time, we worked in lots of different problems, always looking for how to have an impact in large-scale biomolecular data analysis, especially genomic data, through the use of algorithms and machine learning. So we work on lots of problems, DNA uh, sequence assembly, comparative genomics of mammalian genomes, comparative proteomics, uh, protein sequence alignments, RNA structural prediction, cancer genomics, functional genomics, and the ENCODE project, population genetics, and much more as a single cell analysis and much more. So I had a very good run there. I really enjoyed my time. In parallel, I co-founded a company. DNA Nexus, that was uh, a company that I co-founded with my PhD student, Andrea Sandquist, and my colleague, Arendt Sido. Our goal at the time was to provide a cloud environment for large-scale genomic analysis and for sharing data and workflows across research groups and organizations. As you know, DNA Nexus builds heavily on top of AWS and other cloud providers as well, and today, is a growing company of about 250 employees with hundreds of customers across pharma and biotech. And it is a primary research analysis platform of UK Biobank. But I never held a position in, uh, an official position in industry until 2016. Then I was recruited by my former colleague, Bostop actually, at uh, Illumina to lead the team working on computational biology, as well as applied assays at the research division of the company. I really enjoyed my time there. I 
I left Stafford on a leave of absence basis, which basically you can leave for one year, extend it to two years. But because I enjoyed so much my time at the Illumina, within about seven or eight months, I decided to just resign Stafford and give up my lab space. So I really enjoy being in industry because I've always been in research positions in industry or research and development combined positions. So I find it to be a much more multifaceted um, challenge than academia because one has to think always of what is best for the company. So in a way, it is much more team-like effort rather than individual PI being the king or queen of their own custom or something. So it's much more team effort, much more strategic because you have to think of not only what is worthwhile to do in terms of research and development, but what is good for the company, what makes sense in terms of business and strategy of the company. So it's really much more multifaceted. At least that's how I find it. And I have enjoyed my time. So I spent also time at Incitro, that is a pharma AI startup headed by Daphne Kohler, my former colleague at Stanford, actually. And I was chief data officer there. And then finally I landed here at SEER about two and a half years ago. I was recruited to SEER again by some colleagues from uh, Illumina. So at the time, at least the way I understood when I joined SEER is that it is trying to be the Illumina of proteomics. Basically, we try to make fast, scalable, and really deep technology for deciphering the proteome, which can be said is the next frontier in large-scale biomolecular data acquisition, basically. Fascinating. Thank you for that. And then speaking of the proteome, you did allude to it a little while ago when you were talking about the problem that Sierra is trying to solve. Why is using nanoparticles such a game changer in understanding the proteome? So let me say a couple of words of how it works and why it is a game changer I'm, from my perspective. How it works, nanoparticles, when uh, basically incubated in a biofluid, such as plasma, form a corona around them. Corona is basically proteins go and stick around the nanoparticle and basically form a large combined structure. And proteins stick on top of other proteins and so on. So you have like multiple layers of this corona. There is an effect called the Vroman effect, for which basically, initially, maybe you get the most abundant proteins to cover the nanoparticle. But if you let it a few minutes uh, over time, Proteins that have higher affinity displace the abundant ones and attach. Now, in principle, there is no reason why a given nanoparticle would collect proteins across the dynamic range from the abundant ones to the less abundant ones. It could be that maybe the nanoparticle is the best protein that sticks there is the most abundant one. So then it wouldn't work. In practice, we have designed nanoparticles that work empirically very well. So they collect proteins across the dynamic range reliably. So you can quantitatively tell between several samples longitudinally or across different individuals when a given protein goes up or down. Not its precise quantity, but definitely its false change across the samples. That's what you need to do downstream computational analysis. So does it work? Well, 
two days until a few months ago, our ability was about five times more proteins than if you don't do the nanoparticle assay in plasma. And in different biosamples, we have different performance. With the newest technology, what we find now with the Astral machine by Thermo, which is an incredible instrument that goes twice as deep as previous ones. So one would think maybe your ability is now going down compared because NEAT is catching up. The truth is that we now go eight times as deep. So it's even better. So my answer as a computer scientist, I look at data, is that empirically it works. And that's what one needs. Now we have a great ability to develop more and more nanoparticles and to optimize them across the nanoparticle in the way, the, the precise assay. So that's a lot of what we're doing here in research. We have some guided work on that as well. We try to understand the principles of it. So we have a large collection of hundreds of nanoparticles and mixes of them. And of course, we release as product the ones that work best. Yeah, the science behind this is absolutely fascinating. So I'll switch gears a little bit now from talking about the science to talking a little bit about tech. In the tech biospace, somebody of your extensive experience will certainly have a, an interesting point of view around this. But I'm talking about the convergence of science, tech, and the availability of compute resources through the cloud. And how instrumental something like this has been to a startup like Sear being able to realize its vision? It is uh, instrumental for Sear just as it is for many other companies, not in any specific way for us. We generate loads of data through basically our mass spectrometry workflows, thousands and thousands of samples we analyze, and those involve a complex computational workflow that is always deployed over the cloud shared over the cloud and yeah, the cloud really enables us to do our analysis very effectively. And yeah, that's the main way. You recently authored a very comprehensive article about large language models in molecular biology and towards data science, um, something that I greatly enjoyed reading. Given the hype around Gen AI at the moment, how bullish are you on the ability of LLMs to truly uncover insights into biological processes? Just given the, the complexity of biological systems and the many blind spots we have. Absolutely. That's a great question. I am uh, generally, I'm, I am more bullish about biological systems being uh, decipherable by LLMs than I'm bullish about LLMs in general. I have expressed even on Twitter and so on my skepticism about the ability of LLMs to reason at the level of a human. I don't think we have quite, uh, we are close to artificial general intelligence or to a um, human mathematician or human physicist and so on. But in biology in particular, I think we have developed enough technology to really decipher a lot of molecular biology. So let me explain why is that. Biology is incredibly complex. I would say too complex for humans. That's why we make rules that every principle in biology works 70 or 80 or 90%. So what is going on? Uh, biology co is composed of millions and trillions and billions of components and interactions. So we have 20,000 genes, 1 million different proteins and proteoforms and states of proteins, and those interact in multitudes of ways. Those interactions have evolved 
across billions of years and quadrillions of organisms. And by evolved, it means that the ones that confer fitness or at least don't do something too bad, stay. And so we have systems that are very robust. Then the knowledge of this system, what, how this system works is not a few principles like say, okay, I discovered general relativity or quantum electrodynamics. It's not a few formulas that cover the system. It is a million or a billion little rules. So that's where the LLMs are really good at. Given sufficient data, given lots and lots of functional genomic readouts, and we have an increased ability, we have now practically hundreds of different assay types that we can uh, do in cell samples, and sometimes also in single cells. We have a large number of, sam- of types of, of uh, assays that we can do in single cells even. And those readouts give us statistical information as to the interactions of those entities, of those millions of entities. Which protein binds to which part of the DNA, which gene regulates which other gene, and so on. Humans cannot decipher that, but given more and more data, the LLM learns millions and millions of literal rules that statistically give the predictive ability on the system. So that's why I think LLMs are particularly, and this is not just theoretical. If we look at the literature of the past really three, four years, uh, as I said also in my Towards the Science essay, we see lots of problems one by one, which were considered grand challenges or very difficult problems. All of a sudden we get neural networks, not always LLMs, anything that works is good empirically. But typically, LLM, most of them LLMs that basically make huge breakthroughs on those problems. The best example is perhaps AlphaFold, which learned protein folding. It didn't really learn to the dynamics of how a protein folds or the principles or the energy function. What it learned is to put together millions of little rules that those amino acids tend to go together this way. So... That basically, and many other examples, which I cover also in my essay, but I bet you that in the next three months, even this essay will be completely obsolete. We will have better examples. So really, LLMs are really eating molecular biology. Amazing. So now, you know, speaking as chief data officer of SEER, but also as a former founder of a startup, what are some ongoing scientific, technological, and business challenges that you have to deal with at Sierra as you continue to grow as a company? Yes, there have been scientific challenges. We want to keep going deeper in the protein and faster. And uh, by deeper, we mean more proteins across the low abundance, but even more challenging. And that's still a great challenge to really more and more elaborately find and quantify all the different protein forms. Those include splice forms, so different ways in which the exons of a gene are put together to form different combinations of the sequence that eventually becomes a protein structure, allelic variants and quantifying allelic variants, and finally, most challenging protein post-translational modifications. There is 
lots and lots of different chemical modifications that have importance in function, but are very difficult to identify. Mass spectrometry has ability to identify them, but still it's really a great challenge. So that's the scientific technological challenge. The business challenge, in my opinion, uh, really that's it in my opinion, is to make proteomes as ubiquitous as genomes. And there we face the challenge that the genomics folks, really that's my community, I've been most of my career a genomicist, they are not as familiar with the mass spectrometry readout. So for cultural reasons, the proteomics and the genomic folks have been kind of separated. Genomics folks don't know much about mass spectrometry. It's a complex technology. It's really the best readouts for proteins. But basically what we want, there is other readouts that are being developed. First of all, of course, we have affinity-based methods. Those give you a rougher summary of what is in the protein. They're fantastic, but they are also somewhat more limited. Then there is newer technologies such as protein sequencing. It's actually, the, some of them are old, like, like Edmond degradation, but basically new iterations of the technologies that look to sequence proteins. Those are not fully baked yet, so they don't quite work at scale or so, but uh, our technology will interface well with those, but that's like in the future. So the current business challenge is to get the genomic folks to love and mass spectrometry, perhaps get them service centers that will actually perform this work and to really integrate uh, with our proteograph technology. And how long do you anticipate this taking? I think uh, it uh, will take off uh, quite quickly once the utility is recognized. So there are being studies currently and as papers are coming out and showing the power of this technology, I think that uh, things don't take, take off in a linear way. They take off more with a turning point. So you started out as a computer scientist and obviously um, your expertise in genomics and molecular biology is very deep, not to mention proteomics, but as somebody who's been involved in academia and dealt with a lot of PhD students, someone who's been in industry and been a founder as well, would you say that it's easier to hire biologists and then train them on tech and mathematical aspects or hire computer scientists and teach them the biology? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very bold question. I remember it from the beginning of my PhD. And actually, the question is becoming slightly I mean, still very relevant, but slightly less so than it was in the past because it's very difficult now to find a biologist who is not a purely experimental lab person. A biologist attacking some kind of interesting problem in genomics or biochemistry who doesn't have strong quantitative background. There is many, really, biologists graduating from departments such as genetics and developmental biology and so on, who really all their work is computational. They just look at data and write papers, hypotheses, and prove them on data. Then there is a lot of people who finish in computational departments or bioinformatic departments, and their work is really biological in nature. So I think it is relatively easy to train a strong data-savvy biologist or a computational biologist person in machine learning 
not really to become one of the experts in machine learning, but to be good enough to do a lot of the machine learning work required in this area. It is, I think, extremely valuable uh, to have people who have skills such as population geneticists or biophysicists or um, genomicists, functional genomicists, technology functional genomicists, who basically have been doing computation in their work and now they can learn more to do the machine learning. I, I would say it is quite difficult to take a pure machine learning person and uh, for them to be trained in biology, it requires uh, a lot of um, work, including basically to really learn the science, to have the curiosity, if possible as well. When it comes to a larger team, such as let's say our team at SEER or in any other industrial team, what uh, I think is required is to have people of multiple backgrounds. So have some population genomicists and functional genomicists together with some folks who really like data analysis. We are data crunchers who love to do data science, as well as um, a couple really strong, purely machine learning people. So I find that a team like that can work extremely well together and they all teach each other. So you don't want to have any gaps in some of those uh, skills, basically. Absolutely. As long as people can talk to each other and learn from each other and then have very deep expertise in, in certain aspects and more general level of knowledge across other disciplines. I agree. A final question for you, Seraphim. What advice would you have for a young founder who wishes to build the next big life sciences company today? Oh, that's a, that's the last and the most challenging question. First of all, life sciences, biotech is a slower business than tech. First of all, be prepared for the longer haul. That's important. Build as much value as possible before getting funding from VCs. I would say that is a very generic advice that applies to all kinds of companies. But specifically for, okay, so another very generic advice is to have a good team. Really, who are the first people determining the company? In biotech in particular, there is a number of business models that are kind of archetypical business models. So one has to quickly think of your company, what you're developing, does it fit into one of those models? And if not, what is, what is an innovative model? Perhaps that could be really good, but it's interesting. So for example, one model is the Farmer model, because that's a very well tested and tried. It's a slow business, but it's also extremely valuable. And one has to think of what is your angle. Now there is a lot of different AI in pharma type of companies. It is a very inspiring direction, but one has to think also of what is the angle, what is the unfair advantage of your company in that sphere. Another very different archetypical model is Similar to what Sear and Illumina does, is basically to have a technology that is like a microscope. It's a technology that you sell the technology, uh, the instrument and the reagents, and it performs some kind of deciphering work. It really is a data collection technology. And what, interestingly, a very difficult area, in my opinion, is in computation. or 
related to that in data acquisition. I would say if you have a data acquisition strategy, it is important to think of how can you acquire data that pays itself rather than, okay, I'm going to get a gazillion dollars from investors and I'm going to spend it to acquire data and then I have something valuable. It's more like how can you incrementally acquire data from patients of in whatever form that really pays itself. That, that's a, and, and in general, bioinformatics has been proven a very challenging area to build a strong business model. I'm not going to get to why this could be, but it's something for young entrepreneurs to consider. This is super useful in the tip about thinking about data acquisition strategies upstream of any analysis that one wants to run is really a great point. Thank you so much, Seraphim, for coming to talk to us today. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Alvarita. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.